sounds like some clapping. Yeah. 200 fucking episodes. Welcome, everybody, to episode 200, Breaking Kayfabe with Boundrin Barry and the fucking sweet man himself out by the city, by the bay, Lou Kippelman. We are all here. This is our 200th freaking episode, Barry. And oh, it is a good one. Let me tell you what we're going to have for you, the listener, this particular episode. We are going to be interviewing someone, Barry, who has never, ever done an interview on a podcast ever before, ever before. A man who is known personally to Mr. Rose and myself, which begs the question, Barry, why the fuck did it take this guy 200 freaking episodes to appear for an interview? But anyway, that's beside the point. We are going to be reviewing a match from a promotion we have never reviewed before. How's them apples, baby? We're going to be talking. Oh, Barry, I hear the people love this. Food talk with Bowdrin and Barry. Some recent, uh, yeah, less than seller uh, appearances I had at local dining establishments here in the greater coming Georgia area. We're going to be talking about that. But first, Barry, I tell you what, why don't we go to our interview with our longtime friend, former Memphis and CWF referee. Oh, it's the man himself. We call him Jimmy Jett. So, Barry, because your ego knows no bounds, I know that you would like to introduce our special guest for episode 200. That's right, 200 stinking episodes of Breaking Cafe with Valdron and Barry. Barry Rose, why don't you introduce our special guest for this special episode? Yes, certainly, because my ego does know no bounds, Jeff. We're actually <laughs> gonna we're gonna flip this and it's breaking kayfabe with Barry and Bowdrick. How so, dare you, sir? Yes, sir. Well, look at look at my paycheck just skyrocketing immediately. I am a huge star and don't ever forget <laughs> that. Go ahead. Gotcha. So we, we're thrilled too. And so this is uh this is a guy that I guess I've known on a personal level for over 30 years, one of my closest friends. Uh, a guy that has, uh, has always been there for me, which is great. Anytime I was taking a vacation, he's like, come stay with me. And, you know, just a, just a tremendous human being. But a guy that's got this great pedigree in professional wrestling was a wrestling referee, not only in the old Florida territory, which obviously is very near and dear to my heart, but also Memphis and WCW. And he's got so many great stories that I was like, Jimmy, what do we have to do to get you on the show to break kayfabe a little bit with us and share some of these stories? Ladies and gentlemen, we give you a uh, former professional referee, Jimmy Jett. Jimmy, how are you, my friend? Hey, good evening, Barry. Good evening, Jeff. And uh, I appreciate y'all having me on. That was a, a great introduction. And congratulations on 200 episodes. My God, that's some, I, I did not realize you guys had that many episodes. That tremendous introduction, introduction, that tremendous introduction, Jimmy, is in lieu of any pay uh, for your appearance. Yeah, that, that's what we do, Jimmy. It's that we'll butter you up, but don't <laughs> expect a paycheck. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know what? To talk about professional wrestling with a couple of guys like you, I mean, what, there, there's nothing that uh, that's one of that's going to be one of my favorite things to do because I think we all. Uh, have that industry near and dear to our hearts, and it's it's a lot of fun to talk about it and 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 talk about what has happened, what's going on now, and what could happen in the future for uh, these promotions out there. Yeah, absolutely too. So just to start off, Jimmy, and I I just referenced it you years ago, and it's amazing the stuff. Like I can't tell you, you know, the people I met with on a professional level yesterday from my job, 
but I can tell you uh, how you got your name. Like, I remember this story. Share with our listeners, share with Jeff and Sweet Lou. How did Bill Dundee come up with this name? Well, uh, this is in Memphis. This is in uh, early 1986. And um, we are, I am going to begin refereeing for them, and I need to have a name. And so I was using the. I had become friends with Buddy Landell while I was living in South Carolina. Moved to Memphis and um, had been using the name Jimmy Landell. And uh, Bill Dundee says, "Well, what are we going to call you, kid?" And my hair was a little longer then, a little darker. And I had a Joan Jet T-shirt that I wore a lot. I didn't have a lot. I think I had most of my personal belongings in one little bag that I ran around with when I was in, starting out in the business. And Bill Dundee just said, we're going to call you Jimmy Jett, you, you, like Joan Jett's brother. And that's where it started. And we went with it, and it, it worked out real well moving forward. So Bill Dundee gets the trophy for that. I'm guessing then that you, in fact, uh, Jim, love rock and roll, much like uh, Joan does. Sorry, that was a bad pun, I'm sorry. No, it's a pun with actually um, some appreciation for her. Uh, It's amazing to see, you know, she's still rocking. She looks a little different. Um, In fact, isn't she, I think she's opening for this gigantic stadium tour that's going to be happening with Motley Crue and Poison and Def Leppard. I think she's the opener. I know they have a date in Orlando for sure. Well, Barry has always been a big fan of the hair bands, so I'm sure he's going to be making all efforts to go see that uh, that show. Uh, right, Bear? I already have my ticket, so I'm yeah, ready. Amen. Bring it on. <laughs> so anyway, Jimmy, why don't we just start at the beginning? Uh, you grew up a wrestling fan, or how did you first get your interest and then your start in the wrestling business? Let's start at the beginning. Well, that's a great question and a great starting point. Um, so growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, it's a great place to grow up in. Um, great wrestling country, as you guys know. And uh, I'd say it's 1975-ish. It, that puts me at 12 years old. And, you know, at, at a neighbor's kid's house, it's a Saturday afternoon. And he says, you want to watch wrestling? And I, I just remember, you know, like, what, what, what's wrestling? He goes, come on, let's go watch wrestling. So Saturdays, 1 o'clock p.m., WYFF, which was the NBC affiliate, Greenville, South Carolina, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. I'm absolutely fascinated as we start watching it. And, you know, at this time, there's this has got Wahoo McDaniel, uh, the Anderson brothers, a very young Ric Flair, uh, Johnny Valentine, Super Destroyer, those types of names are in the mar- in the uh, the territory at that time. But I, I can't take my eyes off of it. And come to find out, so on the ABC affiliate was Wide World Wrestling that came on at 11:30 on Saturday night. So I remember staying up all night and then watching that taping at home, and um, I, I was automatically hooked. I mean, it was one of it's it's that classic story. I know you. You guys have heard other people, I'm sure, may have personally experienced it yourself, but I immediately was hooked. And so the first thing I started doing was just digging for more. I, I, I really liked to read when I was younger and, and probably until the Internet became so, so much, you know, I, I used to read a lot. And so immediately I'm looking, looking from wrestling magazines at the, you know, the drugstores or at the, the little convenience stores, 
back then, if you guys remember, you know, you've got like pen pals that you can get. You can trade results with people from other territories and wrestling clippings. I'm full bore into this at this point because I'm just so enamored with it. My dad at that point really wasn't, he didn't even know about wrestling, but the neighbor's kid, his dad took us to Greenville Memorial Auditorium two or three different times. It wasn't a very frequent occurrence, like in 75, 76, but it was absolutely amazing to go to a live show. And I don't think that's what we called them back then, but and that particular venue was a great place to see wrestling at or a concert or anything like that. But, and it was, it, from that point on, it just kept building. So uh, then I finally discovered, I think through with the back of one of the wrestling magazines, getting newsletters. And I remember, you know, starting to get some of those very early newsletters. And then you started to kind of start piecing things together. And then you started kind of figuring things out. I watched some things very closely and, and I, I thought I saw certain things, but you didn't have anything to confirm. And I think the first time that I started really understanding this was more theater and more of a scripted situation was when there would be an injury for someone in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And then in a newsletter or, or even in another magazine, you would see that individual was wrestling, say, you know, in Memphis or in Texas or, or in Florida. Now, not, and you remember the magazines were a little, they were a few months behind, but the newsletters were pretty timely. So you could really put some dates together. So, you know, if, if Johnny Valentine had put out one of the baby faces and then you see that he was wrestling in St. Louis two days, or two weeks later, it kind of started figuring it out. But it, all it did was ignite a deeper interest for me because I realized this thing was bigger than just the little town that I was in. So that's that's my initial exposure to it and then how kind of my obsession started with it sure and there was a guy too so it was a guy we saw working in florida in the early 70s and he was kind of a journeyman but he was everywhere he had been i think a bigger star in the in the 60s but a guy by the name of hoss strickland and wasn't he kind of instrumental at the early part of your career as well so yes um so what had happened was you know i i, I go through you know, the next uh, 10 years of my life, absolutely adoring wrestling. My sister and I, she was a huge wrestling fan, also a music fan. Her and I would go to a lot of concerts together. We would go to, you know, Crockett's territory at that point. We're, we're older, so we can drive to places. We're driving to Greensboro. We're driving to the Omni in Atlanta. We're going to Raleigh. We're going to Charlotte Coliseum. We're going to Columbia. And we're seeing these really hot Crockett shows in 84. Um, in, in, in early 85 going into early summer. And um, I started making friends with a few different people. And one of them was the ring announcer that was in Greenville, South Carolina, who was J.D. Costello, the manager of the Mod Squad, which evolved, you know, into uh, Jim and Mac were guys, local mid-Atlantic enhancement guys that evolved into the the Mod Squad. And so got to know J.D. and... Um, J.D. said, you know, there's a guy that lives over in Anderson, South Carolina, which was maybe a 20-minute drive from Greenville, and he's got a ring set up, and, you know, he's talking about running some shows, and, you know, I, I went, let's go over and talk to him. So we go over and we talk to him, and we meet him, and it's Haas Strickland, and Haas had a wrestling school, 
and he was training some guys. And I, and I think he had a nephew that he was training uh, that I thought that actually would do pretty well, but I never even heard whatever happened to the guy. But Haas was starting to run some little small um, independent shows, really in some small towns, you know, like Woodleaf, North Dakota, Winder, Georgia, Newberry, South Carolina, real, real tiny little towns. And um, JD did not want to do the ring announcing because he didn't want to get an issue with Crockett. He liked his role of having that in with Mid Atlantic. And uh, he said, you want to start ring announcing? And I said, yeah, that would be awesome. So I I did ring announcing probably two shows. And um, then I asked him, you know, I I want to referee, you know, does it, and I I knew I wasn't big enough to ever be a wrestler, but that's what I wanted to be. But I I just knew I wasn't big enough. And so I wanted to referee and I started bugging Haas about wanting to referee. And, and he said, yeah, we can let you do a couple of matches. And, we did another couple shows, and I remember we were in a barn, literally a barn, and it was hot, and it was maybe like May of 85, something like that, really, really hot, South Carolina summer, and um, did several matches that night, and it, it was just really awesome to be able to start doing that and, and then do it in another town, and you got to know some of the independent guys. At some time, I don't think I even got paid for doing any of the ring announcing or all the re- any of the refereeing. It didn't matter at that point. You know, you were doing something that you loved and and appreciated, so it, it really didn't matter to me at that point. So, interestingly enough, Haas had a lot of stories. Haas talked about how he was uh, one of the assassins and uh, that he teamed up with Jody Hamilton. And Haas looked to me kind of like a a version of Larry Hamilton, one of you know the Missouri Mahler, uh, who also wore the hood at some point as the assassins. That's kind of what he looked like. But his Haas was the type. His stories weren't so far out that you were like, you know, this. I don't think this is true, or he's just saying this to impress you. He said him with a really matter-of-fact attitude. Uh, wasn't really trying to impress. Didn't seem to embellish. And and this is kind of unusual for an outlaw wrestling promoter, you know, you can, those guys are interesting characters in any part of the country. But, you know, we, that was affirmed later in my life, which was really interesting uh, to find out that that was true. And I think I would have even had a better appreciation of it at the time, but, you know, we all evolve and we have different perspectives about things later on in life as we get smarter. But at that point, I'm 22 years old. I got the whole world and life in front of me and I'm doing something that's really, really fun. Simultaneously, Great American Bash is going on with Crockett and uh, they're doing bang up box office across the board. And um, I go to Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm going to say this is around July or August of 85. I can't remember. And this is the one where Flair came down in the black helicopter and um, it was a hell of a show, a really great uh, American bash. Anyways, I had gotten a uh, access, they had these access passes where you could actually hang out near the, the field that leads up to the ring. And um, I was a big fan of Buddy Landell, had never met him, but just you know saw this guy come into the territory and thought, my God, this guy's got all kinds of those attributes to be one of those stars in the future. And um, 
Buddy's just kind of standing there, and I just walk up and introduce myself to him. And he's just a real personable guy, and just we start talking. And you know, Jeff, I know you know Buddy, and, and Barry, you know him. You know, Buddy always had his level of bullshit, but you know, Buddy had a great heart. He was a good guy, and um, just was really personable with me. And literally says, "Well, you know, come down to um, Super WTCG, the, the, the Atlanta station, one Saturday, and we'll have lunch after the taping." And I really wondered, did he mean that? And um, I, he gives me his number. And um, so two weeks later, goes drive down to Atlanta, which is like 140 miles from Greenville. They do the TV tapings, and uh, we go have lunch at like a, a Bennigan's or something like that afterwards. And um, Buddy was really cool. It was just really awesome to sit there with a guy that I was kind of idolizing at the time. Uh, because I think I was seeing a lot of stuff that, you know, the, the office was seeing that this guy potentially, you know, could, could, could indeed have been, you know, one of the people carrying a territory. And so I had told him that, you know, I was, had been doing some independence and I was refereeing and he thought that was awesome. And it was a nice friendship to have. And well, I would see him on occasion at some shows leading up to eventually Buddy was let go. Everybody knows that story after I believe it was one of the starcades and and he calls me up and he says, Hey, I'm going to Memphis in uh I'm starting in January, which was the beginning of eighty six. And um if you uh wanna come up, you could probably get a referee job up here. I could probably get you in. And I was like, well, you know, let's I'll see and at simultaneously J D and the Mod Squad had basically put together their whole package. And um, uh, we had went up to Memphis and got actually had an opportunity, J.D. and I, and talked to Eddie Marlin and got them booked to go into Memphis in 1986. So I moved up there to them to right outside of Nashville. I can't even I think it was Hendersonville, which was the little town. And um, we lived in an apartment. And uh, they were on the books. They were they were working. Uh, Jim and Mac Jeffers were the guys from Mod Squad. They were enhancement guys from Mid Atlantic. And um, I just got to know some of the people in the dressing room, some of the workers. And uh, Bill Dundee, really really nice guy. Uh, he kind of, I guess he kind of took to me. Uh, there'd be some times where Bill, I'm not refereeing yet, mind you. I'm just going town to town. I have no money. I'm broke. Um, 23 years old and bill would you know say hey would you go get some coffee and they he wouldn't want it from like the high school we were doing the spot show at it would he wanted it from the convenience store down the road i remember bill had like either a dark blue or a black ford bronco pretty new and you know he, i guess i was responsible and he trusted me and i would go get him a couple cups of coffee and occasionally grab him something to eat and you know, people would go, Dundee never lets anybody drive his vehicle. And so I, I think he kind of figured out I was a little, I was normal, I guess, considered to some of the other characters that were in the business. <laughs> but, well, opi opinions always vary on whether you're normal or not, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you, 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 you're right. And, and I, at this point, yeah, I think that uh, life has uh, tainted all of us in some form or fashion. But um, I, we're, and I, and, and one thing that, Dundee had said, always bring your gear with you. And that was really true. So I always had my gear with me. 
and I don't remember the town. It was in Kentucky somewhere, and it was just a small little spot show, uh, early 86. And Bill Dundee says, listen, you're going to do mine and Dutch's match tonight. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And um, we went over the finish, and uh, I did the match, and it was great. And it was just kind of like a dream come true because, you know, to me, I had been trading Memphis tapes for a couple of years leading up to that and um, knew all the big Memphis angles, knew, you know, really how important Dutch Mantel and Bill Dundee were to that territory going back many years. So it was a big deal. And uh, I mean, I, you know, the payoffs were like 25 bucks to a referee back then. Uh, and I hear they're not that different in Memphis these days. But anyways, uh, that, so that was a really, really awesome period. And at that point, I'm thinking Dundee may have been co-booker. I'm trying to remember if Lawler was involved. I, I'm not exactly remembering who was booking, but at that point, I started getting more work, and I was starting to do spot shows. I would do Monday nights in Mid-South Coliseum, Saturday nights in the National Fairgrounds, Evansville, Indiana on Wednesday nights, and Louisville Gardens on Tuesday nights. And so, in my mind, I'm living my dream, but you know, I had no vehicle, so I'm always having to catch a ride with people. But there were some good people that kind of stepped in and spoke up for me or would help me out. And I think part of that, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I knew to keep my mouth shut and do what I was told and don't ask stupid questions and don't, because I watched people that would come in and they would just do the stupidest shit that just, you know, you, you just shouldn't do as a rookie. And especially this business so closed doored and secretive, you just don't do that kind of stuff. So. Well, Jim, let me, let me, let me interrupt you for one second. I want to ask you a quick question. You were talking about that match with, Dundee and uh, and Dutch. So here you are uh, at this point. Let's be honest. You're a newbie uh, and, and a guy that they're offering this spot to in a, in a small town uh, show. So how clued into you, uh, or how clued into the match were you going into the match, or you know did they uh, tell you, hey, like treat it like it's a shoot when it comes to the pinfalls? Like how did that all work? If you remember, well, you know. That's a great question, Jeff, and here's the deal. Bill Dundee gave me the same advice almost word for word as Bob Root did when I came to Florida uh, several months later, and that was just remember, referee everything like it's a shoot, and that, those words always stayed with me, and there's a very, I'll actually tell you a story about Bob Root when we get to Florida uh, for, with that exact mantra in place and how that worked out on a particular match. But uh, that this was a simple match with Dundee and Mantell. It had a simple finish and that's all, that's all that was given to me was here's the finish and that was it. Nobody ever asked me who trained me. I, I, I just I, if I had to say who trained me and, and I don't mean this I kind of trained myself but I would say Tommy Young trained me because all I did was ever watch Tommy Young and he was the best in the business in my opinion, that ever was and potentially ever will be, greatest professional referee ever was Tommy Young, in my opinion. And so I emulated Tommy's style, and I felt like if I referee like Tommy and had studied the business so closely, it was relatively easy to go in and just replicate that style. So that's what I did, and just you just learn more and more in the business, not doing TV yet, so you're not really having to worry about camera positions, cues, 
And at this point, we're not wearing things in our ears like we did in WCW, where you're getting food from a truck and that kind of thing, which came later on in my career. But it was just phenomenal to be involved in doing these matches up in the Memphis Territory and going to uh, all these different towns. There's such a thing you guys know as you pay trans when you ride with somebody. And back then it was a nickel a mile. So if two guys rode with whoever was driving their car, those two wrestlers would pay a nickel a mile to the driver of the car, who you know was, typically was the owner of the car. Dutch Mantell, who lived in Hendersonville also, and would um, take me with him to a lot of different towns. And he was a great partner because he had great stories. And you just absorbed everything he had to say. It was awesome. Dutch would just publicly announce in the dressing room, hey, boys, Jimmy doesn't pay trans. Lawler and Jarrett are paying him peanuts, if anything. When he needs a ride, help him out. Like I said, Jimmy don't pay trans. Like, I'm like, wow, like, that was a big step. And so not once did anybody ever charge me trans. I didn't have any damn money to begin with. So I just always remember little things like that. That's that's incredible. And Dutch yeah. Mantel, we got to say Dutch was at our last fan fest, which was very CWF cool. Legends. Very cool. Yeah, CWF Legends Fan Fest six, and he uh, he just had so many stories. So, so at this point, you're you're still a kid essentially, and you're kind of living out a dream. You know, especially this is the old territory days. We hadn't fully switched over, and some territories still existed. How was your, and I know your dad was a big influence on you and a big fan of professional wrestling when you were growing up. What was your dad's take on you being in the business? And how did your dad react, I guess, when you started to smarten him up a little bit? So my dad became interested in wrestling. I would start to show him things on TV. I would, when I'm tape trading, I start showing him some crazy stuff from Japan or something from another territory. And he was a little intrigued. And then I said, Dad, why don't we go to the auditorium and see a, a live match? And he goes, okay. Now I'm reverting back to around probably 80, well, no, probably 79, 80 about this time because we went for several years and he really enjoyed it. And I believe my dad was an electrical engineer by trade and it was a stressful job. And I think that he truly got his, his pressure out of his system because he he loved the baby faces, he hated the heels, and my father is a very basic dude. But to see him get so uh, in, in involved in watching live wrestling was just a lot of fun. Wahoo McDaniel was his favorite, and it was awesome actually watching him meet Wahoo behind the auditorium one night and shake his hand. It was a really big deal. So my dad wanted me to go to college. My dad wanted me to have a great job like any good dads want their son to do. I was a little rebellious. I, I kind of was doing my own thing, but I also had some really good jobs before I started getting into the wrestling business. So he was relatively satisfied with that. And, you know, he was supportive. He's like, Hey, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But probably around, um, 84 and maybe even 83, I one day explained to my dad how wrestling really worked. And if you can just imagine a kid finding out that, you know, there's no Santa Claus. That's kind of what it was like. And my dad's a smart guy. So, you know, he just was suspending belief. You know, the, the, the old saying, you have to suspend belief for what you're seeing. And I explained to him a few things and 
and he he had a couple questions like, well, what about this and what about this? And at that point, Dad never was interested in watching wrestling ever again. He, you know, he'd watch the stuff that I did that I might have taped on TV once I was in WCW and I'm visiting him, but he had zero interest at that point. He thought he was watching legitimate competitions between dudes that hated each other. And, uh, you know, he just wasn't interested in it after that. It broke his heart. So let me ask you, Jim, uh, going back to the Memphis stuff, uh, as you're breaking in uh, to the business, if you will, as a young referee, you, in a way, were extremely blessed and lucky to be right there in the middle of probably one of the greatest six-month angles in the history of the Memphis Territory, which is saying a hell of a lot. And that is the whole Bill and Buddy show and the the run that they had as the lead heels. And they were with Dutch for a while. And then, of course, Dutch breaks off, makes the contact with Lawler, who was uh, off on some sort of suspension from the area. And what was it like just being in the arenas with Bill and Buddy, because they had so much heat on on the Memphis TV. What was it like in the arenas being uh, being around Bill and Buddy at that point? So that 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 heat was real, like just like you said. And you know, I kind of knew then that this was a unique time, even being young. But having been having been able to spend a fan around the Crockett territory and 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 see the shows in '84 and '85, and knowing what the difference between really hot angles were and what basic stuff was. And, and just as you just said, the heat was intense. Now there, you know, people hated Dundee, people hated Buddy. And, and you got to get a lot of credit to Dundee because this is a guy that continued to reinvent himself and be able to turn back and forth for 10 plus years in that territory leading up to uh, the time that we're talking about now. And Buddy had had national acclaim at this point by having working, you know, doing job, doing work on Superstation and with uh, Crockett. And so there was really great heat. Fans couldn't stand him. You know, Buddy, he had his issues, but, you know, for the most part, Buddy was there for the promotion and, and did what they needed him to do. And um, Bill babysat him a lot. Bill was a lot older than people thought he was. I mean, I remember his son, Jamie, was probably 15 maybe at this point, And Jeff Jarrett was like 17 or 18 at this point, but it was just major heat. And, um, you know, of course, Lawler's over like a million bucks. And the Memphis shows were always just so insane. I never got to do one of their matches. I did Buddy and Bill against each other in Memphis and, and actually got color in that uh, particular match. And then we did that around the whole horn. That was on my way out. But, yeah, it was intense, Jeff. It was a great program. That attendance that, you you know, everybody's read about in the Mid-South Coliseum, that was for real. Uh, they were drawing those kind of Monday night crowds. And the, and, the, and the Saturday night shows in Nashville were sold out. And Louisville Gardens were sellouts. And Evansville, Indiana were sellouts. Because these same matches were going around the horn. It was great. So, Jimmy, you just said something, too, about getting color. So, here you, again, you got a kid. He's relatively new to the business. You grew up in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. You grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. So certainly seeing color and juice was nothing new for you. But the first time that you were going to get color, what was that experience like? What was the conversation like? And then when you did it, did you gig yourself or did somebody do it for you? So the way that went down is 
I'm starving. They're still paying 25 bucks in the, uh, for, you know, for a, doing a, a, a referee, a night of refereeing, 25 bucks. Even though I'm not paying trans, I'm having to help out on Jimmy, I'm having Jimmy, to buy food. Jimmy, can I interrupt you real quick? I, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah. Are you getting 25 bucks at Memphis and Nashville? Like, or is this every single place you go, you get 25 bucks? Yes, 25, even, even in Memphis and Nashville. Okay, and I'm sorry. And I would... And when I would ask, you know, people like, do you think I should say something to somebody? Most everybody was saying, you're going to piss off Lawler if you ask, you know, for more money. And they knew they could take advantage of me. And they do. They, there's been always a history of that in that old territory. You know, it's been written about and talked about for years. But the way I was looking at it, I knew I was living a charmed life at the time. I didn't know how long this was really going to last. and so. I truly was living a dream at that point, and it really didn't matter to me. But I also was a realist, and um, it was getting a little challenging. Nobody likes to carry dead weight around. And I had made the decision that I was going to go back home to Greenville, South Carolina, figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so I give them my notice. And, and the first night was in Memphis. This is around June of 86. And um and 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 I I told Bill what we I was going to do, and he goes, well, you need to. I, Lawler must have had the book because he goes, well, you need to go in there and tell Lawler that so that he's aware, and they take you off the book for anything further. So I go in there, and Jerry was always kind of dismissive to me. I mean, I don't mean that. Jerry had his circle, and I was never in Jerry's circle. And then um, you know, he just kind of was like, okay, kid, whatever, you know, um, thanks, and. Uh, so when are you finishing up? I said, well, at the end of this week. And he's like, okay, that was it. So by the time I get back to the dressing room, Dundee says, hey, come here. And he goes, you're sure you're moving back home? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, then we're going to run something by you. He goes, we're going to do a thing where I'm going to be pissed off at you because you're going to make declare Buddy the winner because you were knocked down and you didn't know. And I'm going to give you color and get some color on you. And I'm, we're going to take care of you. We're going to pay you a little more. I promise you that. And, and I'm like, okay, I've, I've never done that, Bill. And he's like, I'll do it for you. And he, Bill was very slow in the dressing room, showing me exactly how I was going to do. He said, there'll be a point I'll kick you in the gut. You just drop to your two knees. I'm going to gently grab you. You'll feel my hand on your hair. And I'm just going to do right at your hairline a little zip. You just then tuck your chin and hold your breath and everything that's going to need to happen will just happen. And I, I don't know, Bill was just a really nice guy. I totally trusted him. I wasn't scared. Bill had always been totally honest with me, took good care of me, and was just a really, really nice guy. And so we did the thing and we got through to the end. He says, okay, kid, you ready? I'm like, yep. And we do the thing. I didn't feel any pain. I definitely felt the blood coming down. And then just a little tiny slice, and you're going to get a lot, it looks a lot worse, you know, with the sweat and the, and the blood, the heart pumping. So it was great. He beats the shit out of me. I used to have some pictures of it, and unfortunately I don't. All I've got is an old VHS tape of it. But um, <clears throat> so we get back to the dressing room, and they really like it. Jerry Jarrett comes over, uh, and um, he's like, hey, Katie, he goes, we're going to take care of you. He goes, Lawler wants to know, can we do this? Tomorrow in Louisville, can we do it in Evansville? Just kind of do it through it. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So we did it in Louisville. We did it in Evansville. And we wound up not doing it in Nashville on Saturday for some reason. I can't even remember. 
And I left the next day to go home. And true to his word, Bill Dundee mailed me my last check, and I got 150 bucks for getting color each wow. night. So, you know, to me, that was he was a man of his word, you know. And so that was that. That's how that went down. So, so before I get to my next question, uh, I, I do want to ask you though: Did they do the old uh, take a couple aspirin before you get color thing? No, they didn't do that. Um, I never even had heard about that until I got to the Florida territory and you know heard a couple guys talk about that they you know were going to do that before they got color in a particular match. But no, oh. did, did not do that uh, in Memphis or you know in up there in, in that territory. Okay, so just uh, progressing along. So you give Memphis your notice, uh, you work out your uh, your dates, and at what point, uh, how long before you contacted or were contacted by uh, the CWF office and made the move down to Florida? So after I get back to Greenville, I'm kind of a little disoriented. I'm like, what am I going to do? I, I, I had had a couple of really good jobs in Greenville uh, in the automotive industry. And there's an again, the business ties into so many, so many uh, segments of my life. I'm I was managing an auto parts store. This is before I'm in the business. I'm talking about '84, and um, I'm managing an auto parts store. And there's a female delivery driver. She's probably in her late 30s, early 40s, and she's leaving for the day. And I see a guy picking her up in a pickup truck, and um, she goes, I'm I hear the door opening. She's like, Ricky, I'm, I'm coming. Hang on, I'm coming. And I look out there and I'm looking and this guy looks like Black Bart. <laughs> and I'm like, that's weird. So the next day she comes in. I didn't know Black Bart's name is Rick Harris. And I'm like, your, your man, your husband, whatever I said, he looks like Black Bart the wrestler. And she goes, that is Black Bart the wrestler. That's my husband, Rick Harris. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I got to meet him, nice guy. And, you know, I, and then, you know, I actually worked with him at some point later. But so that was a weird tie-in before I even got in the business. But anyways, trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I had, you know, moved away and just trying to figure out what the hell is going to go on. Greenville is still a very textile, a very mill town, not a lot going on. Um, I knew there was some, something bigger and better out there for me. My sister and I, we moved to Orlando, Florida in late June 1986, and um, probably $200 between us, and um, we get a cheap motel, and the very next day, I go, and so does she, and we apply at the Radisson, an international drive in Orlando, and we get hired as servers, uh, waitress and waiter. And so I, that's how I actually fell into the hotel business. So I'm working at the Radisson, and then I'm also working a second job at a place called Pizza Plus. That was an old disco. They still had the DJ booth and all the old vinyl albums and all these crates. It's amazing all that shit was probably worth right now. Anyways, so it's probably September of 86, three months later, and I'm working a night shift at this Pizza Plus. And um, the manager of the place comes and tells me my mother is on the phone in this Pizza Plus joint where I'm making pizza. And it alarmed me because I'm like, why is my mom calling me? So I pick up the phone. 
And she says, a guy named Patrick Tanaka, who was up in Memphis with me at the time. And we know Patrick is Patrick. You know, there's a million stories about there, about him. But I will tell you that Patrick was a good guy to me. And when Patrick, when I didn't have a place to sleep, Patrick would say, you can stay at my place or he'd pay for dinner. Patrick was a really nice guy. And he told me uh, that uh, he was going to put in a good word for me because uh, uh, his father, who was involved in the Florida office, Patrick, as everybody knows, is full of shit. So I figured that was a <laughs> full of shit statement. And um, I never thought nothing about it. But she says that I need to call Duke. Uh, Barry, how do you pronounce, pronounce Duke's last name? Duke Kiyomoka. Duke Kiyomoka. And she gives me the office, to the, the telephone number with an 813 area code to the office at 106 North Albany Street. And I'm just like, holy shoot. I, I just can't believe that this is really happening. And so I remember the damn manager wouldn't let me call from that phone. He goes, that's long distance. You're not going to call. So like I, I, I got a bunch of quarters and I went to a payphone that was outside of the um the the restaurant and I call the office. It's nighttime. There nobody answers. Okay, I'm first thing in the morning. I'm calling the office. I'm calling the office. I guess nobody actually gets there till I don't know one o'clock. Uh, so Duke's not there, but Danny Miller is there, who was the guy running the towns for for uh, for Florida up in you know for a lot of the South Florida towns and then Central Florida and and some North Florida towns. And he's like, yeah, kid, I um, wondered if you could come down to the uh, Eddie Graham Sports Stadium. We want to take a look at you, and it would be this Sunday night. And so this is like maybe a Wednesday. They had tapings that day at the Tampa office, you know, the studio. And I, I'm like, yes, sir, and I, you know, I will be there. And so I'm on cloud nine, man. So I go to Eddie Graham Sports Stadium in Orlando, which is just a classic venue. Uh, not there anymore, obviously, but Elvis Presley played that venue. Led Zeppelin played that venue. And I go to the back and I tell him, Danny Miller told me I'm supposed to come. My name is Jimmy Judd. I'm supposed to referee. They're like, okay. Then he introduces himself to me and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I do maybe two matches and then I just watch the rest of the night. And at the end of the night, he says, um, okay, good job, kid. Good job. He goes, don't want to take a look at you. Um, can you be in uh, West Palm Beach tomorrow night? And that was a Monday night, and it was at West Palm Beach Auditorium. And I have no car, okay? My sister is the one with the car. So, of course, I said, yes, sir. I'm, there, I'm not going to tell them my transportation issues. <laughs> I want them to believe everything's stable and cool. So I begged my sister to drive her car to West Palm Beach, it was like a two or three year old car. So at least, you know, I knew it was going to make it down there and um, do three matches that night. I'm in awe of the guys that I'm around. I mean, Barry Windham and all the Florida guys at the time. I'm just, I'm just amazed because I was buying tickets to see Barry Windham on that little short Crockett tour that he did before he left really quick. And, um, so at the end of the night, they're they're like, uh, yeah, kid, you look good. So, um, do you, you know, if, if would you want to come on full time with us? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Mind you, guys, I have no car. I, I have no way of knowing if I can even fulfill the the response of yes, I want to work for you guys. 
And um, so, bam, you know, off we go. So they tell me to be at the TV tapings in Tampa that following Wednesday morning. And um, I was able to find a car rental deal. And I rented a car for a couple of weeks. And it was it was killing me. I, I couldn't, I don't think I had to find cash to put down a deposit because I didn't even have a credit card or something like that. But anyways, I start doing that and it's absolutely amazing uh, to be in there. I, you know, I'm, I'm meeting guys that I had bought magazines on for my whole life that I'd paid money to watch, you know, in arenas. And it was absolutely mind blowing. I'm getting great advice from Danny. Uh, Danny invited me to ride to a couple towns to him, and um, we're riding to one town one time. I think we were going to Ocala. This is about maybe two weeks in, and I said, Danny, do you remember? He starts asking me where I'm from, and I said, do you remember uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, sometimes this guy and this girl would come, and uh, we would just walk up and buy tickets, and sometimes there were these two front row season ticket holders that wouldn't show up and you would always sell us their two tickets and kind of like a wink and a, a nod, like appreciate your loyalty. And here you go. He goes, I do remember you and that the girl with the crazy blonde hair. I said, yeah, that was my sister. So <laughs> it was cool that we immediately put, he put that back together. So there was a payoff on that, you know, like he, a tie in. So anyways, Danny was just a really nice guy. He has the same habit of me. He likes to drive with the windows down in the car, but the air conditioner on. And, and I thought that was kind of cool because I like to do the same thing. I love the Florida air, but I do like the AC on in the car. I so, do that sometimes too. And it, you know what's weird about that, Jimmy, is, uh, and I'll do it up in Pennsylvania, It's but a lot of it is because that when you turn on the air conditioner, when you get into a car, especially in the Florida sun, that first blast of air is about 8,000 degrees directly on your face. And uh, it's hot as shit. So a lot of times I'll open up the windows. But so Danny Miller, and it's funny because Danny Miller was a guy I, I only met once and it was really, really brief. But this was a guy that literally had done everything in professional. And I'm bummed. I should say I'm really bummed that I never got to spend any amount of time with him, especially running FanFest now in the Tampa area, because Danny would have been great. But you told me a story once, and I'm going to let you tell it because I enjoyed it, but uh, about an interaction with Danny Miller, and uh, this was over a certain spot, uh, you refereeing on the card. You know, Jacksonville, Florida, um, I guess I'm, I'm brave enough at this point to actually ask to do certain matches, and it wasn't so often that Crockett was coming through, but if you remember, like in 80. Spring of 87, Crockett buys championship wrestling from Florida. And so there's a whole lot more Crockett presence on Florida cards at this point. Now, they're still using me, but not on a full-time basis. I kind of fell back into the hotel business at that point. But every time they're in Florida, they're calling me to referee along with Fonzie still there. And then there was a guy from Crockett that was still there. And if you remember, the loop of Florida kind of went away in mid 87 because now Crockett's got the territory and it wasn't until later when Dusty restarted his own Florida championship wrestling. But anyways, I guess I'm brave enough at this point. Uh, and I asked Danny Miller players on the card that night. I don't remember who he's ref who he's wrestling, but I want to do Ric Flair's match. Ric Flair was my favorite wrestler growing up. Always was. 
and uh, I just wanted to do his match, and I felt totally capable to do it. And Danny absolutely said, "Kid, you don't you you need more time under your belt. You need more matches. You know, just you're doing a great job." But now the the answer is no, you can't. And I'm like, okay. And and look, they throw me some bones. Danny gives me that same night, like I did Rock and Roll Express against Tully and Arn, which was a hell of a match. And that sure. was, I mean, that was probably my biggest match to date at that point in that night. So suddenly. Flair, Flair, it, it's one. I think there's one more match left. It's Flair's match. I'm just hanging out. Fonzie is in his civvies. He doesn't have his ref shirt on. He's got his bag over his shoulder. And um, Dave Sierra, his brother, is with him. And he's like, and and Fonzie knew that Danny had said no. And 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 Fonzie, who is just the greatest guy, by the way. And now here's a guy. Most people are going to be very protective about their spot. Like, oh, here's this new guy. He's refereeing. I don't want him to take my spot. I don't want him to get anything that I'm getting. No. Fonzie gave as much knowledge as you wanted to know. He would help you. As long as you were upfront and honest with him, he was willing to help you. And so he's like, kid, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. So I'm like, what are you doing? You've got, you've got one more match. And he goes, you're going to referee Flair. He goes, I'm out of here. He goes, no, Fonzie said I can't do it. Fonzie, no. He goes, you're doing Flair's match, kid. I'll see you. And him and Sierra walk right out the back door in the Jacksonville Coliseum, get in the car and go. I'm the only one there. Flair, I go out to the ring. Danny Miller is still ringside. Flair gets in the ring. I think he's wrestling. Believe it or not, I think this was Mike Rotundo. Not that there's anything wrong with Mike, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, you know, he was, anyways. And Danny, like, looked at me. I said, Fonzie's gone. And Danny's just shaking his head, looking at the ground. And I'm sure he's like, God damn it, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, <laughs> that was a great moment. And it was just one, one of the highlights of being, being involved with the Florida wrestling scene. So later on, you know, Danny already knew what happened. I never got chewed out. You know, Danny chewed out Fonzie, which, you know, you know Fonzie's the king at going with the flow. So, yeah, that's how that went down. But, again, very similar to the remark you guys made about being in Memphis at a certain time. I, I guess, again, having that charmed, you know, just the universe working in my favor at that very moment, that period of working directly for championship wrestling for Florida and then, you know, working for Crockett, I'm starting – well, first, before Crockett's in the mix, you know, Bob Roop is involved and he's booking at some point. And I'm starting to work with guys like Bruiser Brody, the original Sheik from Detroit is coming down there and doing spots. Terry Funk, Dory Funk. Paul Heyman was managing a guy named Tombstone, Paul E. Dangerously back then. He's down here. I go, I go to dinner the, the, the night Muto lands in Tampa the very first time, 1986. I go to dinner with Muto, Danny Miller, Duke, and Muto to some Japanese restaurant in Tampa. They invite me to go. I stay at Duke's house two or three times uh, during Tuesday nights at Spartan Sports Center. I just had a really, really, I guess, a good rapport with these guys. They trusted me. I was, I think they looked at me as a normal person. Again, going back to that, I wasn't one of these crazed wrestling people that has all this kind of shit following behind them whenever they go territory to territory. And, um, but, you know, it was just mind blowing to meet these people. And um, and be on, and that followed in the WCW. And I'd love to tell you guys about some of that, um, you know, later if you want to hear. But 
Yeah, it was really, really amazing. And um, I just, if I could do it again, I wouldn't change a thing. Well, one of the questions I want to ask you, Jim, uh, is, you know, the, the time frame that you're talking about, uh, September of 86. So were you there uh, when Lex Luger, before he left for Crockett? Yeah, I, I was there. Um, in fact, Luger was at the Eddie Graham Sports Stadium on that Sunday night the, when they on my tryout night. And um, he had not left. In fact, he was still working uh, in Florida. I think he had had a program with Billy Jack, I believe. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, he may have been wrestling Kareem Muhammad, Ray Candy, this, the, on my tryout night. I didn't do Lex's match. Lex wasn't very talkative. You know, he had come out of the USFL. Lex was pretty proud of himself, if you know what I mean. And he just, Lex wasn't that talkative. But but eventually, I actually kind of had a good conversations with Lex before before and after he was out of the territory. Because, I, I, again, I, I think I was kind of cut out of a different cloth than a lot of the wrestling personnel. So I, the reason I bring that up is because, uh, you know, you were talking about your, uh, your riding around with Danny Miller. So my, my one Danny Miller story and Barry, I don't know if I've told this story or not, uh, at least on this show. So we would go to the venerable war Memorial auditorium in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, uh, for the CWF shows. And what happens is I, at, uh, you know, had been getting the, uh, you know, the, the dirt sheets, the observer, that kind of stuff. And I would make a copy of them. Sorry, uh, Dave Meltzer, but I would make a copy of them and I'd give them to the, you know, I'd pass them around to the guys and stuff like that. So I had given Danny, Danny was outside, like, you know, by where the, the ticket window was for whatever reason. And I gave him a copy that, oh, here, uh, you know, something for you to read uh, on the, you know, when you get in the back or something. And so the next week I'm walking in the building and I got a dirt sheet. I see Danny Miller walking. Oh, hey, how you doing? Uh, here's your uh, observer. And he looks at me, and he, apparently the week before uh, Meltzer had reviewed one of Lex's matches, oh. uh, wasn't very favorable. <laughs> and Danny Miller looks at me, and I mean, like, it was a shit-in-my-pants kind of moment. And he goes, you know, Lex Luger is not very happy with what they wrote about him in that uh, in that newsletter. I just want to let you know that. I was like, <laughs> it wasn't me, I swear to God. <laughs> Even though it was probably me that gave the report. But, uh, yeah, that was my only time I interacted with Danny Miller. But uh, So it's good to know that he was a, a good guy. So, uh, Barry, I believe you can also make mention of the fact that uh, those that are coming to Lutz, Florida, may have the opportunity to meet our friend Jimmy Jett. Yeah, so we are going to break kayfabe with this, too. Again? How many uh, times per episode, Barry? We, I, this is about a, a good half dozen, I think, that we've actually done it. We've broken a lot of kayfabe, but... Uh, I have invited Jimmy. I think, Jimmy, I've invited you, if not to all of them, at least the last three or four. And for one reason or another, I think it was work and a couple of other things. But you have guaranteed me November the 6th, the beautiful city of Lutz, Florida at the Jeff, what's the name of the hotel? again? Marriott Marquis Suncoast Highway uh, Residence Inn on the the Gulf Coast and. I don't know, Jimmy. There's a hotel. We're having a fan fest there. It's got a really long name. You are going to be in attendance. People after this appearance, Jim, are going to be lining up, excited to meet you. Tell us, Jim, you're driving all the way over to Lutz. You're going to be at the fan fest. How excited are you? And you just mentioned the Rock and Roll Express. They're going to be in attendance that day, Jimmy. 
That's amazing. And, you know, yeah, I, I'm super excited uh, for this event. And when and you are, Barry is spot on with, he, he has asked me uh, in the past about coming to some events and it, the timing has never worked out uh, the way this timing is going to work out. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've been to a couple of fan fests and one of them was with Barry and then, and then Jeff, I, I know that you and I, I went to something with you down in South Florida once. And um, it was one of the funnest times of my life as a fan. I mean, I absolutely loved it. And in fact, that's when we went to SummerSlam. SummerSlam was in Tampa. I think it was 95 maybe. And no, it was uh, Survivor Series, maybe it was. But um, anyways, it, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to coming over there, Barry. Jeff, for sure. It's going to be great. We are, we are going to have the best time. And, Jimmy, we, we do have to wrap up right now, which is there's, there's so much left of your career. We didn't even touch on the fact that you were in WCW during the whole, was it 83, 85 weeks period? which was a really big deal. Can we get the guarantee? We want to get it on air. Will you come back and share the rest of your stories with us? I, I absolutely will, guys. And I think that uh, the WCW stuff is going to be probably the most interesting because for, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but it was, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life and, and, the, and the insides of going on at that time. And, 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 and everything that Eric Bischoff did with the company when he took it over uh, to the implosion of where it ultimately came into is, is a wild story. Told you may, are, times, are you but, talking about wrestling genius Eric Bischoff? <laughs> you know, I, I think Eric would qualify pretty heavily for a lot of reasons. I'm not sure if it's a genius, but I got a lot of respect for Eric and you know, he, he did a, I, I got some great stories for you guys on that. So it'll, it'll probably blow your mind with some of the stuff that went on, but absolutely. You guys name the time and place and love to tell you about it more. All right. So we will have Jimmy jet back for part two, the WCW years, Barry, what do you think? I, and the best part is I love Jimmy to death. I can't wait to sit here and argue about Eric Bischoff with him. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm in, I'm going to give you guys the optic of what it was like to be there on day one when Eric took over the company and listened to that rocker, locker room speech. And I knew right then and there exactly where things were going to go, which was up. And, um, and, and, and I, I played the part of some unique circumstances with – well, I just – let's just hold it till the future. I think it's very interesting – a lot of this has never been told, I'll be honest with you. And so let's just hold that for next time. Barry, always a great time talking with our old friend Jim, a guy that uh, I think we both have known for, geez, at least 30 years. Jeff, I was uh, I had a full head of hair, no hair on my face. I had probably, I might have had a mullet. You, I, well, you definitely had a mullet. Uh, I think my, <laughs> my waist was a 30, uh, I believe. So, yeah, we've known – and Jimmy's waist was a 30, actually. We have known him Jimmy for. Jimmy uh, still have a waist at the thirty, but well, he, maybe, I, yeah. maybe he's like Seinfeld. Maybe he takes <laughs> those jeans and he, and he like magic markers and puts thirty. You know, so uh, he's actually like a thirty-four. Exactly. So, anyway, That's Barry, it is time now for us to talk about our match of the week. First of all, let's give a little shout out 
to my boy, the cable guy, Greg Good, because he sent both of us, how dare he, by the way, sent both of us a message saying, you guys, you got to check this stinking match out. It's amazing. Now, I will tell you, Barry, that Greg Good, oh, let's just say Greg, <clears throat> Greg likes Asian food, if you get my meaning, Bear. Oh, he loves Asian food. He Absolutely. loves Korean food. He loves Japanese food. Chinese. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, anywhere Greg can find yeah. uh, the Asian food. <clears throat> Something in my throat here. But anyway, so Greg is a big fan of the Japanese ladies, not just uh, your Chigusas, your Jaguar Yakotas, your Akira Hokutas, your Manami Toyos. No, no. He likes the current shit. And he has been trying to get me to watch this stuff forever and a day. He finally sent us a link to this match. We are talking. I'm going to fuck up the name here, Barry. Yutami Hashishichita versus Suyuri. We're talking June 12th, 19, 2021. Barry, we're talking fucking less than a month ago, That's uh, a, yep. yeah, basically. So we're talking, as someone said on that uh, iTunes review, current <laughs> wrestling, current yep. wrestling, Barry. So these two ladies, I got to be honest with you, had never heard of these ladies before because I'm not, a, as I've been stated and been well established on not a fan of the current ladies product. So I'd never seen, uh, this particular wrestling, uh, you know, a promotion. Uh, let me just get it straight. I got to go to the, uh, the old phone because Greg, uh, somebody, it's stardom wrestling. It's from their, their show, uh, Tokyo dream Cinderella. It's all kind of gets lost in the translation, but anyway, stardom is the promotion over there featuring these two ladies, and Greg said, you got to check this out. I went back. Meltzer had given this, because uh, I asked him, five and a half stars, Barry. And so I watched it and said, Barry, holy shit, you got to give this thing a look-see. You have now watched it, I'm sure at least two weeks ago. <clears throat> okay, maybe two hours ago. And you've had a chance to look at it, Barry. Tell the good folks what you thought of this particular match from the Stardom promotion that Meltzer gave over five stars to. Yeah, and to piggyback on that iTunes review where we don't shit on modern wrestling, certainly there are things about modern wrestling that we're going to pick apart and maybe overanalyze, as we do with old school. But the truth is, look, professional wrestling, Jeff and I have been fans now. You know, we're, we're into five decades, if I'm correct. So, you know, there's wrestling evolves and things change. And if you don't change or evolve, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. I am thrilled that Greg Good sent this match, though, because my my knowledge of stardom and the amount of matches that I've seen from stardom is probably minimal. I've only seen a couple of matches, but Greg has been raving about stardom for years. He does like to watch the Asian woman roll around and do all kinds of flips. And that's not even talking about wrestling. But anyway. No, no, just in his private life. Exactly. Yeah, so I think he has videos, but anyway. I right. think he does. So this is uh, this was a match that he sent along, and he, he really encouraged us to watch it. And, you know, when you sent it to me, of course, with my ADD kicks in, and I'm like, wait, hold it. This is 45 minutes? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, 45 minutes? I don't do anything. Hey, for I gave you a minutes. short match last week. The Magnum Flair match was short. So now you yes. got to, you know, the ADD needs to be pushed to the side a little bit. It did. And you promised me that next week would be a short match. So, <laughs> right. So we're falling in line. But that being said, there are certain matches that have to be longer for a reason. And this is one of them. And I'm going to say this is one. you know, I love a lot of matches. I'm thrilled. This is arguably, I think one of the great matches that I've seen in the last decade. 
And when I say that, a match that actually has taken place in the last decade. And this match blew me away. I had never heard of either of these women to see the level of competition and performance that they put out for this match. I was blown away. So they literally, Jeff, they beat the hell out of each other for the full 43 minutes. And what I loved about this was the match essentially ends at the 30 minute mark. They give them additional time. And in that that extra additional time, they just beat the living shit out of each other. Uh, this is a this is a great example of storytelling in professional wrestling. There is a story here. First off, they were working this match like it was a shoot, like it was real. And I, I know that there was a lot of and I understood part of it. I did a little research. There was a lot. Somebody's mother had just died. And I think it was Suryi. I think her mother had just died and she was dedicating this match to her mother who had died, I guess, just days earlier. So there was a lot of storytelling and a lot of backstory to this match. Very believable with the super stiff strikes and this believable submission work. Suri, am I pronouncing her name correctly, Jeff? I'll take your word for it. Okay, S-Y-U-R-I, Suri. The stiff kicks, just nasty. She was relentless. The extra time, to me, genius. I thought that was great. And even though this match goes over 40 minutes, it never felt in for one second like this was a long match. Like just the pacing, everything about it worked. We reviewed a match and I think it was, was a Bachwinkle versus Henning and it was 60 minutes. Yes. You remember that match? Yes. The same thing. You ready, to, you ready to go 60? Yeah, well, exactly. But, you know, yeah, yeah. But that was the crazy thing was like, you know, I, it, it was such a great match. Never for one minute did you feel like you were putting forth and dedicating 60 minutes of your life. This is also very similar to that. The climax of this with both of them trying to outlast each other with the crazy strike exchange arguably ranks up there with the stuff we've seen from All Japan or New Japan. Some of the King's Road stuff it just ranks right up there. This is super intense. There is a lot of drama. I can't say enough about this match. Whoever booked and helped put this match together is a fucking genius. This is literally a modern day masterpiece, Jeff. I'm going to say that uh, I don't think there's any question uh, with no offense to people that are fans of like people like Charlotte Flair and some of the other ladies that not just work in the WWE, but NXT and AEW. We are now in 2021 and this is the best match uh, uh, with two ladies this century so far. Uh, that's, you know, we're covered 21 years. Uh, when I first saw it, I, I told you and I told Greg that this is the best thing that I've seen since the Minami Toyota uh, Akira Hokuda days. And, uh, you know, the, uh, people will sit there and tell me, oh, uh, Charlotte Flair had a really good match or, uh, you know, I don't even think about some of the, I can't even right off the top of my head, think of some of the ladies that wrestle for AEW and stuff like that. And, oh, Rick they really Britt Baker, I like her character so much. I love her character. It's such yeah. a great heel character, smarmy and snarky. I love that shit. But let's be honest, Britt character, uh, Britt Baker in the ring is not to this level and anywhere close to it. But and but neither Jeff, it, neither is any other woman in the United States. Go ahead, and, and Jeff, not to interrupt, but I will. But let's be honest: what we witnessed with this match 
how many of the men are at this level? Oh, no, I mean, that's that's very fair. Yeah, uh, I don't but, even think the men are even at the level of. Yeah, uh, but you know, th- there are so many people that want to believe that that Charlotte, and I'm just going to use Charlotte Flair. I don't mean to shit on Charlotte Flair. That Charlotte Flair is close to this, and she's not. She's nowhere. I mean, she has a presence. The you know the wrestling queen or whatever they're doing with her, and you know she has a a presence and a look and all that kind of stuff. But in the ring itself. They aren't even in the same stratosphere as these women, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I've said before that when Charlotte Flair and whoever else gets to the point that the Japanese women were, like, eh, early 80s, I'll let you people know when I see one of those fucking matches and I go, oh, yeah, they're they're finally starting to cross that threshold, but they're not there. And then when I see this match, holy shit, Barry, you're right. This was friggin' brutal. These women were laying into each other with the shots for 40 stinking minutes. Yep. And, you know, you know, I know that a lot of people like the stuff that Ronda Rousey did when she was in the WWE. And I know that's a completely different thing. It's UWF, uh, UWF, it's UFC uh, kind of stuff. And so she's got that believability based on her UFC stuff. Right. But uh, as a matter of fact, I would love to see Ronda Rousey go over and work a match in this promotion with one of these ladies. Because, you know, if she could do it, uh, work this kind of style while understanding that it's not UFC and with the believability of Ronda Rousey. Wow. That's, that's, that's some money to be made there, Barry. So clearly too, this is not a knock on, you know, and I like, I actually, I like Charlotte Flair and I think she's great, but there, I don't see any woman being able to go over and work, but that again, that's not a knock on them. This is something at a completely different level, Jeff. I remember, you know, going back to the eighties, when it was kind of recognized that the greatest promotion in professional wrestling was the all Japan women's promotion. You know, everybody, the level of matches on a weekly basis that they were putting out surpassed any other company that we saw. And I, the booking and the angles also everything. It all, and it all comes, it look, that all comes into play here. These two women are, you know, they deserve everything, but the people behind the scenes to put all this stuff together, they also deserve it. I don't, I, you know, this is at a different level of professional wrestling, and I think you've got to see it to really understand exactly what we're talking about, male or female. So, Barry, as I mentioned on my personal Facebook page last couple of nights at the time of this recording, the wife and I celebrating 18 glorious years uh, of our w- uh, wedded bliss, and we had an occasion to go out to two places here in the general area where we live that we had never been to before. Jeff, uh, not first, to interrupt, but when you're, how dare you, is this what, when you're 18 years married, you go out for two dinners? Is this what happens? Well, I don't know. See, yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Mary Bowdrin. You interrupted me. That's uh, that's a little <laughs> shout out to my mom because <laughs> she always right. does that. Yeah. But no, what happened was the wife and I went out uh, on Monday night, the night of our anniversary, just the two of us. And we went out to a restaurant called Stony River and I'm get to steakhouse. I'm going to get to the story about that. And then Wednesday night, our kids took us out for dinner uh, to a place called Firebirds, which uh, after some conversation with my uh, beloved co-host, I found out he's all too familiar with. So let me just uh, set the stage here, Barry. So we go out to uh, Stony River as we're looking and we're seated. uh, The wife had made reservations. We go in and this reminded me, I'm going to say of the quote unquote, nice steak restaurant. Eh, This wasn't your Longhorn, uh, anything like that. It's somewhat similar to a national chain, I'm sure that you're familiar with, Barry, called J. Alexander's. Are you familiar Absolutely. with that? 
Yeah, okay. much so. Yep. So it's not like super upscale, but the two of us, uh, quite frankly, uh, with the tip, I think are you know, maybe like 125 bucks. Okay. And that includes the, uh, you know, we both got a prime rib dinner. We both got the appetizers, a mm. couple beverages, the tip, you know. So anyway, so it, it wasn't Longhorn, but it also wasn't one of the super upscale, uh, you know, Ruth's Chris or uh, above that. And so, so here's the thing, uh, and I will call upon your experience as a not only restaurant server, Barry, but a restaurant manager. So I will say uh, the server, the server was was really good, and we were very appreciative of the job that she did. Uh, but one problem that I had, uh, and this goes to your managerial experience, is that she brought out our appetizers that we ordered, and literally within five minutes, here's the lady with our dinner. Sure. And we had I. I I got like a, a shrimp uh, appetizer thing that, that were four. It was four, like the proverbial jumbo shrimp. I literally had eaten one. The wife got like, I want to say, a, a spinach dip and chips. Maybe she had had two chips. So Barry, bringing the meal out, and the, and I will say the server said, if you'd like, I can take your steaks back. And uh, you know, and my wife told me later she was thinking, great, they're going to put it under a heat lamp. No, That's I don't. Exactly want that. what would have happened? Yeah. yeah. So. So what do you do as someone in charge of a restaurant when the meals are piling up on top of the appetizers? So there's a couple of things that, that with this first off, so a shrimp cocktail or whatever shrimp you got is something that you'd be able to eat relatively quick. Now, you shouldn't have to eat it relatively quick. You should be able to take your time and relax with it and not be rushed. But there's no way you're going to eat like a spinach dip with chips in, the, in under like two minutes or something. Like, sure. So that's. That's something you you loungingly eat. You know, that's something that the table is loungingly. I believe that's the first time we've ever used the word yeah, loungingly. It is. Show. So there's there's a couple of things. First off, and your your wife, Jeff, Mrs. Bowdrin, the lovely Mrs. Bowdrin, 18 years putting up with you, but getting two truly, dinners. In return. Truly will just walk right through the gates of heaven for that. Yes. And getting two dinners in return for having to put up with you, which that's is fantastic. True. If somebody takes your steaks to the back. Let me tell you where your steaks are sitting. Too great. They're sitting underneath the heat lamp. They're they're not throwing those. They're not. There's not a French guy in the back from like Ratatouille going get rid of these steaks. Be, <laughs> I will I will prepare the new ones. Exactly. They are taking the same steak and they're keeping it warm, which is going to kill your steak. There no steaks going to improve sitting underneath the heat lamp. This is a server error, and I'm going to tell you why. And for and I should let's break kayfabe on this a little bit, what, Jeff. What? Yeah, absolutely. So Firebirds, first off, I'm a big fan of what they do. It is very similar to a concept called Redstone Grill, which is popular here in the Northeast. And I've eaten at Firebirds, I'll say a half dozen times over the years. I was hired. I actually did a training shift as a GM or managing partner of a restaurant. You go through a battery of interviews. You go through all kinds of stuff. And then they actually put you in one of their restaurants to see what you can do. So I spent about four hours working in one of the restaurants. I got an offer letter. I was hired to be the managing partner GM of a local Firebirds. And I gave it a lot of thought. And in about 72 hours, I wound up turning it down for all the wrong reasons for the most part. But I am a big fan of what they do. And I love the food. What does happen, and this is where I'm going with this, in any really corporate and tightly run restaurant, there are a lot of procedures and rules that you're going to follow. And in Firebirds, 100%, I saw the manual falls into it. 
what happens is there is supposed to be a space between ringing up your appetizers and ringing up your entrees. And the way it's supposed to go in a perfect world is when your appetizers hit the table, the server is supposed to ring in your entrees. Now, there is no way in hell that the server rang in your entrees when the apps hit the table and you've got a medium, a medium steak in five minutes. So she clearly rang up the entire order together, which then completely screwed everything up with you. Now, let me ask you, will it make a sure. difference that our server was not the person who brought us out our prime rib? No, because the person that brought you was most likely either a designated food runner, yeah. which a lot of the corporate restaurants have, or it was another team member who was happened, you know, they'll yell uh, pickup or something like that, food on the line, and then a server has to go sure. and get your. So no, that should have no bearing whatsoever, but a lot of corp, and this, this is where a server has to do the job because, you know, a lot of people will go a food server. It's not that hard. You take an order, you put it in the computer, the food hits the table, you take away, you drop off a check, right? There are steps of service. And this was part of the steps of service that this server overlooked. Now, with that all being said, I can almost say, okay, why don't we look at a scenario with this? It, the restaurant, short staff, labor shortage, we know it's happening all across the country. Everywhere I've gone, I'm able to see it. So they trained somebody to do it. They brought in a, a new server. She's been there for two weeks. She's still learning and getting her feet wet. She's making mistakes. Shit happens. We all know that. And I've said this numerous times. It's not about the fuck up. It's about the recovery. Because every restaurant in any business, in any form, people are going to fuck up. It, it happens. But the big thing is, after that fuck up, how do you make this up to somebody when you've essentially tainted their dinner? That's and funny that you mention that, because I'm going to get to that when I get to the Firebirds review. Gotcha. So The recovery from the fuck up, if you will. Yeah, and the recovery is so important. So at the end of the day... You've got these two, you know, two good appetizers. You've got steaks coming out and the timing was off and the, you know, offering to take my steak back to the kitchen is the worst thing you could say to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's absolutely the worst thing. The best thing you could say to me is I apologize. Your appetizers are on me. And let, you know, let's be honest, most appetizers in a restaurant, depending on what the appetizer is, the food cost is going to be low. I used to run a deal yeah, chip, chips and uh, spinach dips. Yes. You know, at right. the very least, that should have been taken. You're about a dollar twenty-five or a dollar fifty exactly. food cost on yeah. it. Your shrimp is going to be higher. It's protein. It's seafood. It's sure. the high. It's always going to be a higher cost. But one of the gimmicks we used to do at our restaurant, the last place that I, you know, that I oversaw, was we would do a happy hour. We would do it on slower days, so Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, maybe even a Wednesday. Always avoid Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And we would offer that if a group of 10 came in and bought their own alcohol, because in the state of New Jersey, we couldn't give away free alcohol, that we would supply the appetizers. And where this gimmick truly worked, Jeff, was that a party of 15 would show up. They would spend $600 on alcohol. And I'm tossing them spinach dip with, with chips or a flatbread pizza that might cost me $1.20 or something like that. So appetizers generally are not high ticket items for the restaurant themselves. They're trying to jack up your check in doing so. The steak is your bread and butter, obviously, but a little, a little appetizer, a little dessert, a glass of wine, all this adds up to incremental revenue, which is what the restaurant's looking for. So 
in essence, again, every restaurant makes mistakes. It's all about the recovery. Okay, so now we're still at Stony River. The server was very polite, very kind. We actually took some time to speak to her about the national shortage uh, of labor, especially in the restaurant business. And she said, we are absolutely short-staffed. And besides that, we all know that sometime within the next two to three weeks, it's going to be worse because all the college kids that are working with us are going back to school. All the summer help that we have is getting ready to return to classes. So we're going to be even further short-staffed. I was waiting for my wife at that point to go, oh, really? Do you have a job application for my husband? But she didn't do that. Thank you, honey. (laughs) So then two nights later, which was Wednesday night, we go to the dreaded Firebirds, okay? Again, very similar to Jay Alexander's. I mean, same layout. The menus are almost identical, okay? And so what happens is when we get there, and I'm going to say they were busy. It wasn't like there was a line going out the door, okay? But they, they uh, they had a good crowd in there, okay, considering it was a Wednesday night. And so I get there, and my daughter and her husband are sitting there. We have our son that we'd picked up. And we're the three of us are walking in. And the first thing I notice is, as the father of a, a teenager, Barry, I'm going to ask you if you know this look. Sort of that petulant child look, you know, that that expression on their face when they're not happy. Hey, you oh, ever yeah. seen that? You ever seen that uh, expression on Zoe's face? I have seen it on a lot of people's faces. <laughs> Definitely Zoe's face, for sure. <laughs> this is the, the soon-to-be Mrs. Ex Mrs. Rose's face. I don't know. But anyway, so I see this expression on Kelly's face and I'm like, oh, what's going on? And my daughter, uh, in her most uh, sarcastic, snarky tone, I can't imagine who she gets that from, Barry, says, well, now that you're here, maybe we can get a glass of water. And I said, oh, what are you fucking talking about? We have been here for 15 minutes and we haven't even had a server come to ask us if we want water. Wow. And she was not happy about it. Neither was her husband. And quite honestly, they had reason to be unhappy. Okay. So I'm like, well, let's change that. And so I begin waving the menu because we're sitting by the kitchen. And I'm waving the menu, trying to attract someone's attention. Uh, and my wife goes, da, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. My son-in-law then says, you don't want to do that. They might spit in our food. Did you ever see the movie Waiting? <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> baby, uh, Barry, baby, baby, Barry, did you? Ever see the movie Waiting? So you're familiar oh. with that scene? Oh, absolutely. Jeff, absolutely. It's one of my favorite movies. Okay. So let me ask you, all the restaurants you've worked in, have you ever had a staff member ever be accused of doing that very thing? Uh, I'm going to break kayfabe, Jeff. So I did Again? Something. I did something once. And I got to uh, tell uh, you. Uh, uh, you? I'm not. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily overly, especially at this stage of my life, this would have been 1984. This would have been New York City. And there was a French guy. And let's say when I was 20 years old, I was uh, a much different personality than I currently am. So I I, I was 20. He was, I don't know, I'll say he was in his 30s, but I don't know how old this guy was. He was a French guy. He was dressed up immaculately. He was with this beautiful, beautiful blonde woman who appeared to be younger. And she kept trying to make conversation with me. And I don't know, I don't know what the deal was with this. So he would talk to her, then she would look at me and I guess she was flirting with me and probably to make this guy jealous or pissed off or something like that. That's in my head what I'm thinking. And as I was walking and I was carrying a tray, a, a cocktail tray, a smaller tray 
of dirty glass as he puts his foot out and he trips me. Nah, nice. So again, I'm 20. So my first instinct, and I knew exactly what happened, is to get up and to smash him in the face with the cocktail tray, right? And I, uh, and he, he's apologizing. The, the <sighs> motherfucker, I'm getting mad. So he's apologizing to me as as I'm down on the ground, but he's doing it with a half smile, and you can hear the sarcasm in his voice. And I was really teed off and ticked off about it. So I got to the back and realized I'm 20. And when I say that I'm 20, I'm really like 14 years old. You know what I mean? I was an immature 20 also. I'm 59 and I'm basically 14. Exactly. So So I get to the back and I'm with all these union waiters and guys that are, you know, much older than I am. And they're like, you know, motherfucker, you're going to let him get away with this. You're going to let him do this. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't have a, a safety net in New York city. Like, I'm, you know, I lose my job. What is that? What happens to me? Right. I don't, there's no like grandma there to take me in in her condo. So I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And this one guy, and I'm going to say his name only cause I know he's dead. His name was Baron Rainey and Baron Rainey was this older African-American server that had been the tavern on the green for years. And he, uh, he looks at me and he goes, You can't let this motherfucker get away with this shit (laughs) just like that. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I said, you know, I don't got, you know, I've got like, like a hundred dollars to my name. I need my job. I can't do it. He goes, we'll get the motherfucker. So I don't know what he meant by that. Turns out at the end of the meal, I actually removed myself from that table, which was the right thing. And somebody else picked it up and we used to work in teams. So I should say there were three of us that would work in a team to cover a table. Somebody took my place. The guy orders a cappuccino and Baron says, we're going to get this motherfucker. Baron brings out a full fucking container of Visine, squirts half the bottle of Visine in this guy's cappuccino. The guy then drinks the cappuccino. And all I know, and I don't know anymore, is that the guy after, I would say, drinking the cappuccino, getting ready to pay the check, Gets this look on his face that I, and Baron's pointing this out. He goes, watch what's going to happen. Gets this look on his face and goes to the bathroom. I don't know if he spent the night in the bathroom. I don't know anymore, but I do know that Baron, uh, with, with my assistance to some degree, (laughs) put Visine in this guy's cappuccino. So I have never heard that. uh, I mean, I've never sampled any Visine (laughs) through my mouth, but uh, is that something that historically makes you ill if you swallow it? Apparently gives you diarrhea. Oh, wow. It makes you go. And this was something I should also say. So Tavern on the Green was a union restaurant. It was called a union house. And it was mm-hmm. the first place. And I think I've only worked in one other place that was ever unionized. But that was a big deal. And what it also meant was because the union was working with this guy, working with these guys, they were also protected. Like you would have to murder somebody to lose your job. Oh, hold because- on one second, Barry, just because you mentioned that it was a union house. Uh, shout out to our friends Ben and Kelly on the southwest coast of Florida, because I know Ben is Ben's big union guy. guy, and he's going, "Fuck yeah, union man!" Okay, <laughs> well, here's what it was like when I first. So again, I was I was literally a 14 year old in a 20 year old's body, and even then, my body was probably a 16 year old. So it, it wasn't you just, like you had just gotten the hair down there. But anyway, pretty much, it wasn't like I was like some world traveled adult at this stage. So. This was a big deal. So joining the union was something initially that I was against. Why? 
because I had monthly dues and I didn't want to pay shit. And after the Visine incident, I'm joining the union. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was like, you know what? You join the union and you're protected. Now, nothing ever happened. But I will say that the older guys, and again, we're talking guys that were lifers that were doing this. They had, and the Visine was their big one, that if you fucked in, and you know, they, look, they were saying that we'll wait for this guy outside, you know, and here was the funny thing. I, I, I was willing to walk away because I needed my job. Yeah. More than anything, these guys wouldn't let me walk away. Nobody fucking does this to one of us. You know, it was like, because I was one of them, nobody's going to get away with this shit. And I was like, all right. And they were actually going to wait for this guy outside and beat his ass. Yeah. Amazing. isn't it? I, I was going to do an impression of the guy <laughs> as he tripped you. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. A little curly haired boy uh, I, that I've tripped you. Please bring me my food and my cappuccino. <laughs> exactly. But uh, that's my very bad French impression. So anyway, finishing up. At the dreaded Firebirds. So what happens? I begin waving the menu. The wife says, "Stop doing that." Uh, and then finally, one of the uh, I'm trying to think what went first. No, uh, someone. So I kind of get somebody attention. I, and he said, "Yes, can I help you?" I said, uh, "Yeah, can I get a server over here? We, my daughter and her husband, have been waiting here for like 15 minutes, and uh, w- nobody's even come and given us water." Oh, of course. So he goes over, and I want to say another 10 minutes goes by, and finally, some girl walks over. Now. I'm gonna I'm gonna be nice, okay, and say there is a good possibility that this table was not her station because we noticed her primarily in the middle part of the restaurant. But if that's the case, then she should have fucking had it out with somebody because she got uh, the bad assignment. But anyway, so she the the girl comes over. Oh, can I get you something? Yes, I said we would love to have something to drink. Uh, she comes over and she brings us back our various and sundry uh, drinks. And then leaves, and we don't see her again for another 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and she hasn't taken our order yet. And so, in the meantime, my son in law is like, you know, he just got a glass of water and he's trying to, you know, rattle the ice to get somebody's opinion. So, I see a guy that does not appear to be a server, looks to be in management, and I kind of wave him down and I said, hey, man, uh, you know, uh, let me just tell you, we've been trying to get some refills on our drink here for 10 minutes. And then, besides that, my daughter and her husband were here 15 minutes before we got here, and no one even approached them to give them water. I said, I don't know what's going on, but we would really appreciate some some service here. He says, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I don't know what happened. I'm going to get right on it. I said, okay. So then we, uh, let's see, um, I think we, uh, now that I mentioned it, I think we had ordered appetizers before that. So another server, a runner, brings over what we had ordered for appetizers. So I'm still looking for our server, the girl that had come over had taken our order. And I see her back in the area where, you know, there's the ice and the drinks. And I see the manager talking to her. Okay, so Barry Rose, restaurant manager, tell me the conversation you're having with that server. Uh, Well, again, I only know what I know from the surface, and there's generally more to it. So you're going to try to figure out exactly what's going on. You're going to try to get to the bottom of it. In the middle of a shift, it's never a great, especially during a rush, which I'm assuming this was if you're not getting service, it's never a good idea to get too deep into the conversation and stuff like that. The most important thing is you got to get this server back on track, whatever the issue is, if you need help, let's do it. But again, you know, this is such a weird time right now. She might be saying, you know what, let's say his name is Tom, Tom, go fuck yourself because you've given me a table here. Then you've given me a table halfway across the dining room. You're not, you know, it, it, God knows what's going on in restaurants. No, and that, and that is very fair. Yeah. And, you know, and I told my kids at the end of the service, because they were paying 
and they were trying to decide what kind of ki- uh, tip to give her. And I said, the only reason that I'm even considering giving this person like 12%, okay? And you know me, Barry, if the service is good, I'm going to take care of them and more than I need to, okay? So the only reason I'm even considering giving them that is because I'm under the assumption that maybe this isn't her assigned station and they just kind of threw her over there, okay? Right, right. So because that being said, the service was fucking horrendous, okay? So then we see her talking to the guy. Another five to 10 minutes comes by. Oh, are you ready for me to take your uh, your, your meal uh, order now? Yes, okay, so we order our meals. And, uh, you know, not too long. It wasn't really terribly long. Uh, our meal came out. By the way, we had a nice Philly cheese steak in an egg roll with a spicy mustard sauce. Mm. Top notch bear. I will say that was the Absolutely. that was probably the best part of our entire fucking meal. Did you so, get the chicken wings or no? Uh, no, I ended up getting the uh, the filet mignon wrapped in bacon. Okay, because their chicken wings are I, arguably the best chicken wings I've ever had. Really? That's kind of interesting. I'll have to let the yeah. wife know about that. So uh, you get the filet mignon. Now, usually when you get a filet mignon and you leave the restaurant, what are you saying to yourself? You're saying, that was, that was a fucking good steak, man, a fucking filet mignon. Of course, naturally, I got it because someone else was paying, but that's another story altogether. Sure. But so we're walking out, and I said to my wife, you know, I realized uh, after all this, and here again, Barry Rose, a uh, restaurant manager to extraordinaire. I'm going to ask you <laughs> if you're if you're Tom, the name you've given him. Sure. Are you coming back to check on that table at some point? Oh, Even understanding yeah. understanding how busy it may have been. Okay? Absolutely, you are. Because why? Because you've got an irritated guest, and an irritated of course. guest never Me? saw him again. Yeah, Tom hit and the road. There was no hey, we'll take the egg rolls off your uh, your menu there. Uh, to show you a little appreciation, because I'm sure there were five of us at a place like Firebirds. I'm guessing the meal was probably in the $200 range, okay? Sure, sure. And that, that's very conservatively estimating, okay? And that he couldn't come up and say, uh, yeah, let me let me just take that uh, that that check and I'll I'll take off those, uh, you know. Or even better, Jeff, what, what I would have done in that situation, you can do that. That sometimes is the easy way out and you can do that. What I would have said is I would have given you a $25 gift card. Of course. And I would have said, please, the next time you come in, I want you to ask for me personally, and I'm going to ensure that you have a great experience. And what does that mean? That means you are 100% going to come back to my restaurant. And that, if you remember, is exactly what the manager of the Longhorn did when my wife and I were bothered by some lackluster service. Uh, That's been like four months ago. But- so this guy, not only did he not come over, offer a, and let's be honest, I'm not doing this to kind of milk a gift card out of somebody or to get a free appetizer. All I want is decent service. You're, you're at a restaurant that, you know, again, this is not Longhorn. It's not fucking steak and shake. This is a, a restaurant where you're paying a couple hundred dollars for a few people to have a meal. This is a nice restaurant. And for whatever reason, whether this girl was kind of thrown into the fire because they were down a server or whatever. I mentioned it to this manager and he never fucking thought to come back and say, uh, Hey, I know you guys had some problem before everything been rectified. And quite honestly, I will tell you that after the meal got there, boy, that server was right on top of the shit with, Oh, we need your drink refilled. Yeah. Can I get you in it? And I told my wife, I said, she is trying to save the tip. That's exactly what she's fucking doing because she knows that we're pissed off. And she's worried she's not going to get nothing. Quite frankly, I'm not that big an asshole. 
I know how hard these people work. I would never fucking do that to a server. But, you know, you 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 get paid for your efforts. And if your effort is shit, then don't be surprised when your your pay, your your uh, you know, your tip is not as good as it might have been. If this girl had been on top of shit, she well, would have made some good fucking bank. Go yeah, ahead. but in her defense, and again, it's a you did see her across the room, right? Well, I won't say it's not like she was on the other side of the fucking building. She was right. just my wife happened to notice that she was working more the middle of the room where there's like, I don't know, like about 10 tables. We were like in a booth sort of on one side of the building. So, you know, that's why it I said like they may have stretched her out too. Thin. Yeah, no. And, what, and absolutely, what irritates but, me is when you're you don't see us. You, you go to a restaurant and, you know, again, let's say you're you're spending 30, 40 dollars per person and Firebirds kind of falls into that. So. And then you look for your server and you don't see your server anywhere in the dining room for 20 minutes. And you just know, let me guess, cell phone or smoking. Like, you know what yeah, I mean? No, no, and I know. That's what irrit- it's different if I see that my server is working hard and because that's a management issue. You've stretched yeah. my server way too thin. But when you disappear for 20 and 30 minutes, you're either in the bathroom on your cell phone, you're out back, you're smoking. You're doing something that's bad. So two things I would say is, number one, as you said, I think it's incumbent on the manager to come over to check on us, okay? Again, all he needed to do was say, hey, I know we had a horrible start. I I want to make, you know, you guys are here. I want to make your dinner right. He apologized. Oh, hey, I'm sorry that happened. I'll I'll take a look at what's going on. But yeah, you need to do the follow-up on that as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, the, the disappearing waitress who tried to save things at the end, it would have been nice if she had said, uh, you know, hey, I talked to the manager. We're going to again, uh, I'm not asking for a filet mignon to be taken off my menu. That'd be unreasonable. But, yeah, those uh, uh, Philly cheesesteak egg rolls, uh, we're giving you those gratis or or your drinks. You're not going to pay for your your soda or whatever because we weren't ordering cocktails. Uh, those sodas, th- those are uh, because let's be honest. What's the, what's the fucking markup on soda, Barry? It's. 95%. Exactly. So yeah. you can say, I'm going to give you those three uh, Cokes or Diet Cokes. We're taking them off the menu, that that eight bucks. Just so, again, as you said, so I can walk out of that restaurant and go, well, you know, the start was kind of shitty, but uh, yeah, he took a little something off our bill and, and it sort of made me feel better about it. But as we walked out, my wife and I looked at one another and we said, you know, that place, the service was so bad. But to counter that, it wasn't like, yeah, but boy, whoo, that food was awesome. Because quite right. frankly, the filet mignon wrapped in bacon, which by the way, the bacon looked kind of very, like not very cooked very well. Uh, uh, it was it was not like I went, holy shit, this is the best fucking steak I've ever had or anything close to that. If I had, I would have said, yeah, you know, we'll try it again because man, this food is really friggin' good. Didn't do that, Bear. And that was very, very disappointing. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we are still in search of a really nice, uh, more upscale uh, steak place here in this area. Haven't found it yet, Bear. We have a guest on this uh, this episode, and they had a steak dinner that was one of the best steak dinners I've had, certainly in recent years, but maybe ever. Like, it was that good. And we'll talk about that in depth because, again, food talk to me is uh, it's everything. As I mentioned, yeah, the gathering, when we recorded uh, our last episode, which was really a recap of the gathering, it was amazing the amount of people that came up and said, I love to hear you two talk about food. I didn't get one beaker and whatever the old fucker's name is. The other <laughs> beaker and whatever. Shut the fuck up about food. <laughs> None of that. Huh? Exactly. 
but uh, it is, it's, you know, and look, these are weird times. And as we sit here, we know with the labor shortage and that labor shortage also goes to the back of the house. So it's not just what we're seeing up front. We're seeing at the back of the house too. It's completely changing everything. My biggest concern, and this should, when I say it's my biggest concern, what I think the biggest concern of a restaurant manager or owner should be currently is the situation with Firebirds really wasn't handled correctly. And he certainly, what he should have done is, is greeted you as you were leaving the restaurant to once again apologize, to invite you back in. And when you come in, ask for me because I'm going to make sure. And that goes such a long yeah. way. But, but none of the, a lot of that shit's not happening right now. And I think what we're seeing is that because of the labor shortage, there's a lot of subpar dining experiences that are occurring and there's not a lot of great recovery. And I think when everything stabilizes, whether that's in three months, six months or a year, I think some of the restaurants that that really haven't been recovering well, they're going to feel it. And that's I think that's a shame. And, you know, again, let me just reiterate, if this had been like us going to bring an Olive Garden or something, you know, you sit there and you say, eh, it was Olive Garden. But when you're when you're paying that kind of money for a nice meal, you know, it's a family gathering and and you feel like eh, I really kind of didn't get my money's worth. That That's a, a very bad feeling. Barry, I do want to mention here, uh, changing gears real quick, uh, happen to be checking the old Breaking Cafe with Bowden and Barry podcast site on oh. iTunes. Saw a recent review that was oh. left. Very appreciative. He talked oh. about how wonderful we were, how we were. Oh, we talked about everything, including modern wrestling. And he what? said we don't shit on modern wrestling, unlike other podcast. So I would like to encourage you, if you are a fan of the show, if you like the, the fact that we talk about food, go on iTunes, leave us a positive review. It helps Barry. Oh, it's one of my favorite words with the algorithms. It so, uh, yeah. So if you could please uh, be considered enough, if you enjoy the show, if you're a, a recent listener, go on there, leave a positive review. If you uh, think the show sucks, quite frankly, why are you listening still? But that's another story for another time. Okay, Barry, so now it's time for the uh, beginning of the old go-home, rounding the turn, if you uh, will. So uh, I want to go home, Jeff. This well, is a fun you, episode. Barry, you got to go home. Now, all go I'm going to say is I sure hope, Barry, now we don't start getting the daily Greg Good recommendations, uh, you know, <laughs> for, for different uh, uh, products from the Far East, shall we say, uh, uh, as he well, perhaps Jeff, is speaking what? for myself, I hope I hope I, I get <laughs> well. That's because you're single, you yeah, exactly. After, you know. <laughs> I'll take those, but uh, you know, maybe he'll uh, get you from now. Never mind. There's going to be a very yeah. bad joke, and I won't say it. Uh, but uh, we appreciate uh, Greg for his recommendation because this was a stellar recommendation. Yeah. So as we begin to go, I want to thank our good friend uh, Jimmy Jet for joining us for uh, some stellar, stellar stories about uh, work in Memphis. Uh, introducing his dad to Wahoo McDaniel and then talking a little CWF. And uh, Barry, I think we can safely assume we are going to have Mr. Jet back to talk some Eric Bischoff stories because, oh boy, you know I'm going to be ready for that. No, me too. And I, I'm ready to, and I love Jimmy, but I'm ready to argue, my man. So <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> so anyway, on behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman. Lou, Skull Production Value. That's a reference to a YouTube channel I like. Uh, but we appreciate all his fine efforts. And my co-host, Barry Rose, I would say that I am Jeff the Booker Bowdren, and we are a production, oh, I haven't forgot, Lou, of the Arcadian Podcast, uh, no, I, I'm sorry, uh, 
I forgot about the Vanguard. We are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Wow, I fucked that one up. Take it home, please.